Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with Willem van Dender and shortly, and as always, during the show, we'll be joined by our former ITN journo turned pundit, Derek Dyson. Now, while all football fans' number one priority is the game on the pitch, its health off it is always something that is ever-present in a country that is rare around the world in that the game is not far and away the preferred sport. So when the Australian Professional Leagues announced this week that they'd struck an agreement to sell a 33% stake in the competition's to American private equity firm Silver Lake for $140 million, sealing the largest single injection of capital into Australian football in the game's history and valuing the entire A-Legs organisation at $425 million, it was time to sit up and take notice. This is more than a sugar hit. It's a partnership and cash injection that is a genuine game changer. So to talk through it all, Managing Director of the Australian Professional League's Danny Townsend joins us to talk about what it all means. We'll continue the international discussion with Matildas and Socceroos with Willem van Denderen. Regular listeners will, of course, know, though, that we always enjoy our European pundits. And we've got plenty on the show every single week. But one of the favourite local experts is our mate Daniel Garb, who's worked across all the major media outlets, but he's now hosting the APL A-League podcast. Garby doesn't always get to chat about European football these days, but this week we're going to pick his brains on how he sees what's shaping as a memorable Premier League season and ask the question, will the latest COVID outbreak disrupt football again? And of course, we'll wrap it all up with our usual extended stoppage time with Derek and the boys. Michael, um, in Bangkok, uh, still uh, enjoying the humidity of the glorious uh, Asian country that is Thailand, um, but that was a huge story this week. Uh, had you had a whisper that this was coming or uh, um, did this come out of the blue? No, no, no. This has been on the cards for a while. I've been going through the Foreign Investment Review Board and it was on the last two agendas of the Football Australia Board as well. So yeah, obviously the regulatory boxes were being ticked and this deal had done been done um, uh, many months prior. Don't forget Silver Lake has a very deep uh, relationship with uh, the Abu Dhabi Investment Group, which is the capital mm -hmm. resource for the city group. So um, obviously the Melbourne City owners have had a big role to play in all of that, which um, I noticed Football Australia probably alluded to in their press release. But, you know, um, it is, as you said, a welcome injection of capital for our game. It's probably... Um, the last roll of the dice to elevate our game to the standards that we expect and want. So good luck to Danny Townsend and his team as they deploy this capital and let's hope it's a lasting impact. But Rob, like most professional leagues around the globe, the A-League's grappling with COVID-19 infections at, mm. and we know that Newcastle and Perth are navigating a tricky time. Uh, with that in mind, we should reflect on Bay Munich's Joshua Kimmich, who's been ruled out of for the rest of the season while he recovers from long-term effects to his lungs as a result of contracted COVID-19. Kimmich, who's often mentioned as a future German captain, unfortunately, he was unvaccinated and it caused a local furor in Germany when information of his unvaccinated status broke because he had been fronting a government PR campaign to encourage vaccinations. That's probably one of the more ironic uh, bits of COVID news in football that we've had in a little while. But with that backdrop, Willem's got some breaking COVID news of her own here in Australia. Hello, Willem. I oh, I certainly do, Michael. G'day. How are you? And how are you to Rob and to all the listeners? Yes, uh, we thought we were 
Out uh, in the clear for a little bit with the A-League men's and women's season starting without a hitch, but that looks set to be the case no longer because Perth Glory players and staff are in limbo after a player tested positive in Queensland, where they are, of course, ahead of Saturday's meeting with Brisbane. Queensland health authorities face a ruling on whether to consider those around the player close or casual contacts. If it's the former, the squad face 14 days in quarantine, which, of course, includes Christmas. Tony Sage told Perth Radio the players are distraught and that the light at the end of the tunnel they thought they could see has been closed off. So Rob, this isn't really a football issue, it's a state-based issue, it's, a, it's an Australian issue and the nation really is is broken uh, in terms of unity. We've seen in the cricket as well in the Ashes, Pat Cummins, he's been ruled out despite having passed uh, a negative test on the morning of the, the second test in Adelaide. If he had been in a different state, the rules would have been different. I think everyone's just fed up and over it. Yeah, we all are. However, you know, we know and we've been told for a long, long time that we're going to have to live this thing for a while. And uh, I guess it just gets to the point where, you know, you, you can let the frustration get the better of you or you can just um, wear the slings and arrows and, and just try and divert your attention to to uh, the, the positives about it. I mean, you know, you, you don't have to watch uh, endless press conferences anymore uh, about this ongoing story that uh that is covid so you know I, I guess it's a it's a convoluted way of saying that you know we've got to live with it these are the sorts of things we were told would happen they're happening some news that wasn't hard to be enthusiastic about this week certainly for people in victoria is that the socceroos will return to melbourne on january 27 for the first time in over four years to host the upcoming world cup qualifier against vietnam the last time the socceroos played in the state was september 2017 and the hunger for the return is apparent with over 15,000 tickets sold during the pre-sale window following the match the socceroos head to oman to play their eighth qualifier on feb the second before the final window in march features meetings with japan at home and Saudi Arabia away, Michael. And as a result of those two uh, impending fixtures, that makes this Vietnam match and the Omar one to follow non-negotiable uh, three-pointers, each of them six points required from this window. And if anyone thinks it's going to be easy, you just need to think about the last time the Socceroos did play in Melbourne, uh, a painful 2-1 win uh, over Thailand. Yeah, I remember that game well. We had about uh, 5,000 shots at goal when we hit the bar three or four times, but uh, that's uh, obviously with my uh, Socceroo heart well and truly beating outside my chest. Um, great to see Melbourne get a game. We were lamenting the um, the lax attitude of the Victorian government to international football, but uh, fantastic this game will be in Melbourne. As we know, uh, right around Australia, the Vietnamese communities are very strong, so expect the Vietnamese uh, Dispora that's in Melbourne to come out and uh, and create some great atmosphere along with our own fans. I'm looking forward to the game. And the one thing I know for sure is that Amy Park is a wonderful surface. And if we remember back to that one nil victory Hanoi, um, the uh, the game was played on a on a on a paddock. So I think the Socceroos will really benefit from having the ball on the deck and uh, being able to use our our skill to hopefully uh, weave their way past and. Um, and score some goals. Um, uh, that game against Thailand that you mentioned, Aaron Moy was a very big, uh, prominent fixture in. So we just wonder whether Aaron Moy will be able to escape China and come back to Australia and uh, and and figure in this game because we might need him. Shifting gears, Sergio Aguero has tearfully announced his retirement at 33 after the discovery of a heart condition in October. 
Aguero told those assembled he was proud of his career, he'd achieved everything he'd wanted to, and felt fortunate things hadn't ended sooner. Aguero departed Man City as the Premier League's highest scoring foreigner with 184 goals from 275 games, and retired as Argentina's third highest goal scorer with 42, behind Lionel Messi and Gabriel Batistuta. And Rob, we're going to talk to, with Derek later on about the legacy Sergio left, not only at Manchester City, but uh, in English football as, as a South American and across the whole world, really. And it should also be mentioned that he was a bit of a mark for Duca at Independiente when he was there. His hometown club, once he left, they ripped the stadium down and built a new one with the cash they'd, uh, they'd made off him and also uh, a very commendable career at Atletico Madrid before City. And I think I'm right in saying the son-in-law of Diego Maradona as well. So um, I'd be interested to see the, the progeny and how that uh, uh, works out over the over the coming decade or so. That would be a player, boy or girl, uh, if uh, if we get to see uh, um, one of uh, one of the the Maradona stroke Agueros. Another great striker of the modern game, Robert Lewandowski, is on the verge of breaking another of Gerd Müller's records, drawing level for Bundesliga goals scored in a calendar year with his 42nd of 2021. Lewandowski scored a brace in Bayern's 5-0 hammering of Stuttgart and now has one match against Wolfsburg on Saturday to move clear of Muller's 1972 haul. In May this year, the poll scored in the last minute of the Bundesliga season to move clear of Muller's record for most goals in a campaign, which also had stood since 1971-72. And it was nice to uh, go down memory lane with Chris Williams about oh, two and a half months ago when, when Gerd Muller passed and learn a little bit more about the legacy he left. So there's plenty of context for us to uh, consider these feats of Lewandowski currently, Rob. Yeah, there sure is. Um, he's a legend um, in our lifetime, isn't he? And uh, you know, breaking those sorts of records, it's uh, it's always as a as a, a fan of football and a and of the football history, which we all are, to see um, you know those those names uh, get knocked off the list. And and it's uh, it's good to see that a, a player of his stature and and quality is the one that's doing it. That uh, uh, it's yeah, it, it's history in the making. And finally, to Qatar, Tunisia and Algeria will meet in the final of the Arab Cup on Saturday after both won their semi-finals in dramatic fashion. Tunisia scraped past Egypt at Doha's newly built Stadium 974 when Egyptian captain Amar El Solia scored a 94th minute own goal. And this now is the final piece of action of the 90 minutes. Slitty drives it across. Oh, it's in! And it was a touch of Amro El Soler, the Egyptian captain, heading it in. Tunisia are in the final of the 2021 FIFA Arab Cup. Mohamed Bellali scored a penalty in the 17th minute of stoppage time in the other match to see Algeria pass Qatar at Al Tumuma. Yes, you heard correctly, not extra time, but stoppage time. Nine minutes were initially added before uh, a VAR review prolonged things further. So, Ed, you've been in uh, that part of the world recently. Uh, this is the 10th staging of the Arab Cup and first since 2012. And for the record, Tunisia won the first in 1963 and haven't added to it, while Algeria have never made the final. All right. Well, well done. Uh, now, we talked at the top of the show about the Silver Lake investment in the Australian professional leagues. Uh, nearly half a billion dollars is uh, the value of the A-Legs after that investment uh, was uh, was taken into account. Uh, Danny Townsend has been right in the middle of that, and we're just really keen to have a yarn to him to find out just where that money's going to go, what the plans are for the future. So stick around. Danny Townsend will talk to us about the Silver Lake investment in the A-Legs next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe- 
Brands for Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings, and Storage King, the kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of Yes, this is Box to Box. Now, we said off the top of the show that football fans' obvious number one priority is the game on the pitch, but they're always aware of its health off the park. And it's been an ever-present issue in this country because we know there is lots and lots of competition. So this week when the APL announced that they'd struck an agreement to sell a 33% stake in the competitions to American private equity firm Silver Lake for $140 million, sealing the largest single ejection of capital into Australian football in the game's history, people sat up and took notice and the man behind this involved in the negotiation discussion planning management and the spending of this money in future is of course the managing director of the australian professional leagues danny towns and he will welcome you back to the show danny how are you mate mate great to be back can't believe it's taking this long to get me back on i must have done a good job last time ah you did an outstanding job last time <laughs> and it's great to have you back on on such a great week because uh, you know we're, we're all multi-sport fans on this show and, and we think our listeners are generally too uh, but uh, we we see the big money come in for the afl we see it come in for rugby league we see it come in for even rugby in recent times with some of the deals they've done and football fans watch on and say, when's that payday going to happen? And in the past week, it actually did happen, Danny. So it's it's massive news and uh, and very exciting for the future of football in this country. Yeah, it sure is. I think, you know, you know, in any business, some of the greatest ideas and the greatest products in the world have failed because they've been undercapitalized. And I think, you know, when you look at football and, and the years of toiling that we've, we've, we've had is really because we haven't had the funds that some of the other codes have had um, to really amplify their sport. You know, we, we know with a global game, you know, with a global game for a reason, football works. It's a, it's a great product and it, and it's the number one sport in so many countries around the world. You know, it's the number one sport in Australia on many metrics, just not at the professional level at this stage. And um, yeah, that takes investment, sustained investment. And it's great to see that a, a you know, sophisticated investor like Silver Lake sees the enormous upside that we all see in, in football in this country. Well, Danny, 33.3% of the equity in the APL has been sold to Silver Lake. Um, it's been reported 100 million US dollars or about 130 million Australian dollars. Um, before we sort of talk about how you will deploy the capital, but can can you tell us, um, decipher for us, for all our listeners around Australia, who is Silver Lake? Uh, we know they've got $90 billion under management exposure in North America, Europe and Asia. 560,000 plus employees, they're a monster. But who are they and what do they offer the A-Leagues? Yeah, look, Silver Lake are uh, one of the preeminent sort of tech, um, media, entertainment investors um, uh, in the world. You know, they've they've invested in an enormous amount of uh, businesses that we all know and use every day uh, in our lives. And um, But as a private equity company, they're always in the back. Um uh, doing their thing, but but for for our benefit, what what we saw in them is that ability to uh, align with a lot of their portfolio companies. If you if you look at their portfolio company list, you've got you know sports agencies that we know well, like IMG and others. Uh, they've got um, digital and tech companies like Peloton, which have mastered the direct to consumer play through technology. You've also got you know sports like the UFC that were probably the the um, a best example of, of deploying a strategy similar to what APL has been looking to deploy with with um, our digital first proposition. You know, UFC took a an in stadium live 
event and turn it into a digital proposition globally. And um, we've got a lot to learn from so many of their companies, you know, Twitter, social media, they're, they, they're invested there. Uh, they're obviously invested in city football groups. They understand football. Um, so, so look, there's just so much for us to learn from a, from working with a, a partner like Silver Lake. You know, we, we could have raised capital domestically. We had plenty of options when we went through our process. We were dealing with a number of private equity companies based here in Australia. But the reason we wanted to go offshore was that we wanted new ideas. We wanted to lean on best practice. We wanted to sort of, you know, inject new thinking into what we're doing here in Australia and Silver Lake are the perfect partner to do that with. Well, the obvious question is, it's 100 million US dollars. Um, it sounds like a lot of money, but then when you think about what needs to be done, maybe it's not a lot of money, but how will you deploy that money? And I think one of the key questions a lot of people in my network have asked me is, will the existing owners of the APL unit holders, will they get a dividend out of that 100 million dollars? Absolutely not. You know, it, it's been a condition of, of the capital raise process and, and all the unit holders are complicit in that, that this is about investing in growth. This is not about taking money off the table. Yes, the, the owners, the, the unit holders have invested a huge amount of their own personal wealth in what, what you see today on the pitch at the A-Leagues. You know, that's, that's largely due to the investment that those individuals have made in this code in this country and they should be applauded for it. But ultimately... You can't lean on twelve people to to fund a code in a country. You, you need you need it to be a sustainable economy within itself, and that's been the problem with football. There's this notion that you're not wealthy enough to own a football club. Well, that basically says you've got a crappy business. Um, so what we need to do is deploy this capital in a way that's going to build sustained economic value for football. Um, and it's not about necessarily building that value and taking it off the table, it's actually making sure that these businesses are sound. And by, by deploying that capital centrally through the APL, our, our job is twofold here at APL. It is to build a more sustainable professional competition. And in doing that, we'll, we'll provide the clubs the more sustainable financial framework to operate inside. That means that they don't need to be operating at losses every year, that they can break even and reinvest any profits back into building their clubs. And, and that's the focus of, of how we're going to spend that money. Danny, you mentioned in your article with Don Bossy in the Sydney Morning Herald that there are eight uh, areas for investment but um one we're, we're competing obviously with football in, in, a, in a global market here unlike most of the other sports in in this country so you know we can't uh take low-hanging fruit of marquee players and you know at the peak of their game and say we'll bring them to australia because that's just not going to happen we obviously need to invest in the quality of the product on on the pitch but Optics uh, in in life uh, mean so much, and and for the the casual observer of football in this country, let's call some of them the Euro snobs, the the non football fans who are just sports fans, mm. they'll be drawn into something that's successful when they see great stadiums, full yeah, stadiums, 100%. entertaining proposition. What, what do you have to say about that, and what we can expect to see on, on that score in terms of physical? Uh, structure of, of stadia in, in the not too far distant future? The barometer of health in a sport is how many bums are on seats in their stadiums because there's a knock-on effect to that. It goes down through how many people are there watching in stadium, how many people can't get there and watching on television, how many people are engaging through the social media and digital channels that are amplifying the sport. You, know, you, you can look at so many different metrics to determine 
the health of a sport. And at the moment, you know, we, we're not alone in having a battle on, on attendances. If you look at the Big Bash, it's really struggling as well. And, and I speak to my colleagues over there and they're all dealing with this same challenge that is, you know, the, the change of human behaviour on the back of being in lockdown for months and, and not going back to the habitual nature of going week in, week out to, you know, their local stadium that they love. And, and I think we're in a situation where we need to um, really capitalise on this investment to ensure that we focus on filling stadiums and getting our clubs playing out of stadiums that are fit for purpose for our game. You know, I, I, I spent a lot of time and having worked a lot over the years in my time in the US with the MLS and looked at the evolution of that. And, and you know, there was a lot of things that you need to do to get a, a code of consequence like ours moving in the right direction. It's not one single thing. The same was with the MLS. But one of their pillars of change was stadia, ensuring that, their stadiums were full. They were they were playing in proper stadiums that were fit for purpose, that were full every week, that when you turn on the telly and you saw the unique vibe that football creates in a stadium and say, I want to go there next week. That's that's what we need to do. So but I will say it's not just one thing. You know, I when I, I spoke to Dom about this and many others this week, it's been around, you know, we are not gonna we're not gonna wake a sleeping giant with one one action. It's going to need to be you know, 10, 12, whatever the number is. We're going to need to do a lot of things. We're not going to get them all right. We, you know, it's like you can have 12 shots on goal, but you know, you're going to score eight. You know, that's, that's the sort of mentality we've got. We're going to try things. And, and they're going to be – I break it up into two areas of investment. One is about investing in the product. That's on the field. That's marketing. That's brand. That's, that's amplifying the sport. And then there's business investment, which is just sensible investment of money in the football economy that's going to give our investors and our owners and, and the sport itself returns because this is not $140 million that we're going to burn. It's got to pay back, and because why is it got to pay back? Because that money it pays back will be reinvested to continue the momentum. If in five years we wake up and we've spent 140 million, and and yes, the game's in a better place, but the economy of football around our game is still broken, then we've wasted it. Well, Danny, these are exciting times for the game in this country. But you said it off the top, but uh, it's one thing to get the big payday. It's another to execute it correctly. I remember back in 2003 when Rugby Union was in its heyday and had the World Cup here and uh, and went into a real trough afterwards when the Wallabies had been the, the golden child of Australian sports. So I know you we, we know you're conscious and everybody around of how, how that uh, money needs to be invested and and, uh, and to deliver the outcomes that uh, that everyone who loves football in this country is relying on yeah. to, to deliver. So all the very best with it, mate. Uh, we'll watch with interest and support it uh, with enthusiasm. And uh, and we, as always, mate, thank you for your time. And uh, look, we probably won't talk to you before Christmas. So uh, all the best for the festive season. And uh, let's look forward to a, a bumper new year, mate. Yeah, no, look, thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. We've got some enormous wins uh, behind us that we should all be positive about going into to the festive season. So, yeah, thanks for having me on, as always, and, and um, happy to come on any time. So thanks very much. All the best to you guys for the festive season. Thanks, Danny. Danny Townsend, Managing Director of the Australian Professional Leagues, which is going along at pace. All right, stick around. We're going to refocus back on football, Socceroos and Matildas next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all.
Yes, this is Box to Box. Great chatting to Danny Townsend just now about uh, the investment uh, in Australian football. It's exciting times and hopefully we will we'll see uh, an excellent uh, use of those funds as uh, time passes by in the next uh, uh, immediate future. But um, I'll tell you who uses their funds well to get us deals every single day is our fabulous partner, Chemist Warehouse. And if you haven't started shopping for Christmas, you might uh, have noticed that it is now less than 10 days away before Santa comes down the chimney. So beat that man in the red suit with the big black boots and the reindeers and the sleigh to the Christmas tree and get all your shopping done at Chemist Warehouse because they have got a great range of big brand fragrances that are sure to be the perfect gift like the English Premier League fragrances Liverpool, Tottenham Hotspur, Arsenal, Manchester City, Chelsea just $19.99 and Manchester United Rob don't forget the big club Manchester United I know I didn't mention them again did I um, so they're all there. Must, I, look, I mentioned been... Arsenal. I was going to leave them out, but uh, they're no, involved as well. Fourth on, the, fourth on the table, Arsenal. And <laughs> yes, we I understand yeah. that's a very sweet-smelling fragrance, unlike Liverpool, which sells smells a little bit like... Okay, we'll move right along there. It smells outstanding. Now, if you don't want a Premier League fragrance, you can go classic and elegant with Hugo Boss bottled 100 mils, just $49.99. For something more modern with a fresh scent, try Jimmy Choo Man, 100 mils, $59.99. And for a warm, woody scent with spicy notes, try the Kissimmee for men, 125 mils, just $69.99. Get into Chemist Warehouse. They've got great savings every single day. Now, what about um, the Newcastle United uh, one smells like, Rob? Mm, yeah. Okay. Smells like money. <laughs> Dirty money. Well done, touche. <laughs> All right. Well, Willem. Um... Uh, talk about. Here we go again. Just uh, bring out the Arab prejudice again. Go, go for your life, guys. Defend yourself, Willem. Uh, well, we would have heard in the first hour a little bit of the uh, audio, the background of the Stadium 974 in Doha, and it sounded absolutely magnificent. So if you liked what you heard, make sure that you sign up to the mailing list at uh, for the G Green and Gold Army at ggatravel.com. They're your ticket to the 2022 World Cup this time next year. Doesn't sound like a bad deal, does it, Michael? No, it will be a lot of fun. Um, the stadiums are fantastic. The weather will be beautiful. Uh, the um, shish kebabs will be bubbling away Ooh, on yeah. all the barbecues. And the football... Well, no better football in the world than a World Cup, and uh, we'll be there. And, yeah, um, travelling at the moment, as I've done a lot of it in the last three months, is uh, getting uh, more reliable and also um, more efficient as uh, COVID's managed really well outside of Australia. So we are looking forward to a bumper World Cup. Join us in Doha next year in 2022. Register your interest. Uh, for our soon-to-be-launched packages at ggatravel.com.au. Let's start, Socceroos, and Matilda Central with the UEFA Women's Champions League, where Arsenal have seriously flirted with danger, but have advanced to the knockout stages following a 4-1 loss to TSG, that is Hoffenheim. Hoffenheim needed to beat Arsenal by five goals or more and very nearly pulled it off, scoring thrice rapidly in the second half, past the defence that included Steph Catley and Lydia Williams. Uh, Fortunately, though, they have advanced, but only by the skin of their goal difference. Elsewhere, Leon made it five wins from six to finish the group stage on top. Let's head to the FA Women's Super League in England. We're nearing the midway point of the season, and again, it's Arsenal who have opened up a four-point gap on Chelsea after the Blues were stunned by Reading 1-0. Back to Worth for uh, Sam Kerr after her big week, losing 1-0 to Reading. Lydia Williams and Steph Cutley have been taking part for the Gunners 
uh, a fair bit. And they thumped Leicester 4-0. So that's a significant result midway through the season. Making up ground this week also were Manchester City, where Haley Rasso was in the thick of it up and down the flank, providing an assist in a 3-2 win. And Kaya Simon and Emily Gelnick went head-to-head as Tottenham took the points over Aston Villa 2-1. Kaya scored her first goal for the club from the spot, and they've moved up to third. For the Gents, Tom Rogic has continued his scintillating Celtic form, helping them pull one out of the fire against Ross County with an assist 97 minutes in. The shot comes in, it's blocked. Celtic still have it. They need to get the ball in the box. Rogic, it's a good cross, it's a chance! In mid-week, Big Tom also scored the only goal of the match against Motherwell. Celtic are four points behind Rangers and Rob. That League Cup final is on Monday morning, so there'll be silverware for Australians either way. They're, of course, playing uh, Hibernian, where Martin Boyle uh, struts his stuff, but I'm firmly in the uh, the Celtic corner. Some first silverware for Ange. Wouldn't that be delicious on the stroke of Christmas? Well, I just imagine what the reaction will be if he does get it. Uh, he's already uh, in good favour at, uh, at Celtic, so if, if he can bring that trophy back um, and start to 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 bring back the the honor and the prestige of, of that great club then he will be the well if he's the man of the hour already he'll uh, he'll be the man of the year so uh, already won a manager of the month award so yeah just interesting it just, i just get the feeling that uh, that there's going to be something special in this premier premiership race in in scotland and uh, you know this could be a real turning point Let's uh, chat a little bit of A-Leagues. I want to start with the men's competition, and I want to start in the Hunter, where the Newcastle Jets, in my opinion, are the most must-watch proposition of the competition. Michael, I can't remember a team scoring four more beautiful team goals uh, in a single match than they did last Friday night against Wellington. They dissected them straight through the middle of the defence every time, and I'm in love with that forward line. But it was the great unknown uh, heading into the season. Arthur Pappas is sort of a collective eclectic rather sort of unknown recruits but Mikkel Tadzi uh, the number nine I don't think I've ever seen a striker receive the ball to his feet uh, from a goalkeeper rolling it out that's how DP likes to drop uh, and they're all different Bumal left-footed Pena uh, often in behind sort of trying to create and making lots of runs and Valentino Yule we know is a bit raw and a bit rangy so I think they've got a fantastic mix and this week uh, they get to test themselves against the best in the competition MacArthur or the top in the competition at least uh, on Sunday afternoon what have you made of the Jets early? Well, I'll tell you what I've made of the Jets. Um, I have a, this is a bit of a, a insight into my little world that I live in. Um, there's only so many games of football you can watch every week, isn't there, Willem? So you've got to choose wisely. So I have a little calendar system where I review the games and I pop in three or four games that I want to watch over the weekend, whether that's um, the European game, A-League game, W-League game. You know what I've popped in for the next four weeks? Newcastle. I'm not missing them mm. because I agree with you 100%. They are so much fun to watch. Um, Arthur Pappas, he's got an unbelievable narrative to his journey in football. And I did hear a little um, interview with Valentino Yule. Tino, they asked him about what Arthur was like and whether Arthur had a girlfriend. And Arthur said, uh, and Tino said, yes, Arthur does have a girlfriend. Her first name's Soccer and her last <laughs> name's Ball. Rob, I want to turn uh, attention to uh, the side that are just up the F3, the Mariners. They were awesome against Sydney FC and really bullied them uh, into submission inside the first 20 minutes. They played a lot on the counter-attack last year under Alan Stachich and it sort of got a little bit tired and ran out of puff towards the end of the year. But this year under Montgomery, uh, they were stroking the ball around with real intent and confidence and pinned uh, Sydney FC back. It was sort of alternate reality stuff to see the Mariners really bossing Sydney FC. Yeah, it is. It's sort of a throwback to the early stages of the A-Leagues, isn't it, when uh, the Mariners were the team to beat uh, the uh, 
I guess, you know, we're 26 rounds over the course of the competition, so I don't think Steve Corrick is going to be, you know, biting his fingernails down to the quick just yet. But I think the point you make around Central Coast and Newcastle is that we're seeing two sides which have been, well, at least in recent years, the perennial underdogs uh, continuing their growth. Obviously, the Mariners from last year and, and Newcastle under Arthur Pappas with that, you know, just scintillating, exciting style of football. So, you know, Marco Urenia, you know, uh, he's uh, he's really lighting it up with the Mariners. Uh, it's 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 great to see for a team that was on the brink of not even being involved in the competition. So, yeah, everyone who listens to this show know I loves it. And a big shout out to our good mate Ray Gatt. Um, we should get Gaddy on the phone again real soon to find out what's uh, what's going on up there at the Central Coast. Because even though he's uh, sort of in semi-retirement, if you if you follow him on Twitter, <laughs> there's no retirement about Gaddy. No, no, not at all. Still punches out full copy in uh, in tweet form each week. <laughs> Michael, that first goal scored by Arena started from a tackle in midfield by Oli Bazanich. It was just brilliant. Uh, it was on Harry van der Sarg, I think, and from there they were up and scoring pretty quickly. I want to throw one up here. We know the Socceroos are lacking a little bit of steel in midfield. Oli Bazanich is 33 in January, uh, maybe getting a little bit long in the tooth, but I think he's playing his best football. Is that is that ridiculous? No, it's not. No, and uh, I think you just raised a point. To, you raised an item that I wanted to make a point on. Um, I, I listened to Urenia's post-match press conference and he sort of let slip the coach had put it on him and Bazanich has been the senior pros in the in the club to deliver week after week. And, um, and Urenia mentioned that, that's, you know, what he, he was very focused on delivering for the team because he knows his role in the team. That's code for, I know that I'm um, one of the better players in the team and they rely on me to deliver. And I think Bazanich is the same. And I, and I actually do like when, because um, professionals go through a phase in their career and when they get to Ollie's age, um, a lot of the aspirations about what you can do in the future disappear because you're now looking for, well, what can I do in the, the remaining years of my career? And I think Bazanich has made the decision that he wants to be a real leader and a contributor to um, growing and developing players around him. And, and I think he's doing that role very, very well. I think he's an extremely good player. And if there is a hole in midfield uh, that needs to be filled, I'm sure Graham Arnold's having a good look at him because he's um, he's not only in good form, he's showing fabulous leadership. So it'll be interesting to see whether Bozanich and Urenia can, can keep delivering that sort of performance week after week. That's the big question. And they could turn coach kills as early as Saturday. They host Western Sydney Wanderers. All eyes will be on that one. Let's move on to the A-League women's. And I want to start with Adelaide. They had their first win of the season under Adrian Stenter. And the goals came courtesy uh, largely through a Japanese import who I think has played uh, and played her, her time in the Adelaide NPL system. Nanako Sasaki. The first was a, a belter from outside the box and the second uh, a really classy sort of delicate locked and through ball for Emily Condon. And the big news for Adelaide Michael is that Dylan Holmes, off the back of her stint with Hacken, where she played some Champions League football, is set to return for the remainder of the season. Yeah, that's a welcome injection. Uh, Dylan Holmes will add a lot of um, stability to to that team. But Emily Condon uh, once uh, got a call up into a Matilda squad uh, about two or three seasons ago. Bit of a one of those forgotten generation of players at the moment. She popped up to uh, finish off the winner. And um, yeah, the Japanese they've got uh, two Japanese uh, players there, Adelaide. Uh, the first couple of weeks they um, looked a little bit out of sorts. But um, you're right, Willem. They had. Um, um, they had a good game this time, and uh, let's hope there's a, a bit more, a bit more upside for Adelaide uh, because in round one against Melbourne Victory they were pretty horrible. 
But what about the Wanderers? They're stinking it up in the A-League women's just as they are in the A-League men's. They followed up their nil-all draw first up with Wellington with a 2-0 loss to Sydney FC. So they're now uh, the only side who haven't scored a goal. And they were punctuated and hurt really by a couple of really cheap giveaways. Uh, Catherine Canulli's in the chair and they now face the Jets this weekend who hit five of their own uh, last weekend. So do you see the Wanderers maybe partnering Canberra at the foot of the table as the season rolls on? Yeah, I do actually. Again, their their squad is just uh, you know all the good New South Wales players end up in Sydney FC. They don't go to Western Sydney Wanderers, so the the major talent sort of gravitates there. I think they're having problems recruiting players. I think they're suffering from a couple of issues. Some of their players um, who have big reputations aren't delivering, and I, I just don't think they've got the talent to uh, to challenge. And you know they were um, they weren't uh, on the scoreboard thrashed by Sydney FC last weekend, but in general play. They were Boston dominated. They really didn't fire a shot. Um, I think Western Sydney Wanderers, again, it's their recruiting and list management. I think they've got a lot of questions to answer. Yeah, they do. And in um, you know some of the, uh, the the real salad days of, of women's football in this country, uh, you know, we have huge expectations around all the clubs and opportunities for players. So, uh, you know, just two years out from the World Cup, um, we uh, are expecting more of some of these of these bigger clubs uh, at the bottom end of the ladder. But uh, we'll keep watching them and uh, reporting on them and uh, hopefully we'll see some uh, some better results in the not-too-far-distant future. Okay, well done, gentlemen. We uh, will wrap it up there after the break. We are going to talk to Daniel Garb. Uh, we always enjoy chatting to Garb. He, he's uh, just a, such a passionate football man, isn't he? Um, you might have uh, heard him recently on his A-League podcast, but uh, we're going to talk to him about football in Europe, the Premier League in particular. So stick around. He's next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal Yes, this is Box to Box. And as our regular listeners know, we uh, have plenty of European-based pundits who join us on a regular basis, whether it's from The Athletic, from The Times and uh, from the clubs themselves. But uh, there was a man who we enjoyed listening to for many, many years when he was working for Foxtel. He's now covering the domestic game with his podcast on, on the, uh, the A-Leagues. And uh, we still love hearing his voice, but we... Enjoy hearing his opinions on European football, and we welcome our good friend Daniel Carb. Daniel Carb, back to the show. How are you, Daniel? Good, boys. How are you going? Yeah, real good, mate. And we love your podcast. Uh, for anyone who is looking for a good one that uh, that covers the A leagues in detail, uh, they need to get on to that to that and subscribe. But uh, mate, we wanted to get you on this week to talk about um, European, in particular. Uh, English Premier League football and look the, the question off the top is we're all watching with a, a little concern uh, the, as we see one of the great seasons unfold the um, re-emergence of COVID again uh, you're a close watcher what, what's your take on all of this? We're all tired of it aren't we? Tired mm. of monitoring it, tired of talking about it, it's annoying so we thought we were all past this but um, obviously in the UK it's uh pretty troublesome at the moment and games have been postponed and it's interesting watching I guess them try and adjust the rules as they go I mean you had Tottenham have a game Premier League cancelled and a European game cancelled they try to get the game against Leicester this week postponed as well but um, the Premier League said no to that Man United had a game postponed this week apparently they're closer getting their game postponed on the weekend so it looks like there's different rules based on different things as we go. Um, but you know, they got through the worst of it last season. If they could get that season or two seasons ago and last season away, well, it should be all right to finish off this one, I would think. So I think we'll be okay all in all. 
the start with Leeds, uh, a massive loss on the uh, a massive loss uh, this week to Manchester City seven nil. Um, Victor Orders been in the headlines for all the wrong reasons on the field. Off the field, they've got some big news coming, but on the field, um, they're in trouble now. They they've only won one of their past five matches, and you know relegation is looming, or the zone relegation zone is looming. What's your view on how they're placed, and and will the great man Bielsa be able to uh, to steady the ship and get him going again? Yeah, it's not great. I mean, you look at Bielsa's record, and he doesn't stay long at places. So. You do start to ask questions. Does his style of management fit beyond, you know, a three-year period? Do things start to unravel? Is his style, is it a little bit Mourinho-like? I don't think he has friction with people like Mourinho does, but is it so intense that it's hard to maintain over three years? That, that, those are valid questions, I think. And then you could just ask about on-field tactics. I mean, is there enough defensive acumen? We know that they're a lovely team to watch going forward. We know that in a player like Rafinha, they've got one of the best talents outside you know, the top four teams. Um, but is there enough of a steal to the side? Uh, without Patrick Bamford for large parts of the season, is there enough leadership? Those sorts of questions, I think, are valid. But um, yeah, Bielsa has a, a track record of, be it by his own doing or things unravelling. After two to three years, things can get a little trickier and it seems like they're in that phase right now. Another team in trouble, Newcastle United. Uh, of course, there was the the fanfare and ceremony of, of Mike Ashley's departure a few months ago. I think they've now stripped the Sports Direct's branding off the stadium. It's just the, the last remnants of that era gone. Eddie Howe brought in and some optimism there, but it really hasn't been a good start for Howe. He's really struggling to get any kind of result and the fixtures list just looks more difficult and difficult. Uh, is it a, sta- a stage that even if they get to the transfer window and make some signings, they could already be down, couldn't they? I don't know about down, but they're in a lot of trouble. I mean, they've got, yeah, Liverpool tomorrow morning. Um, but you know, January's not far away. So you'd like to think with the money they've got now, they will have already made contacts and made offers and had some deals in the pipeline. Um uh, they'll be in the relegation zone, you would think, by the time that comes around. But if they can sign a couple of, of important players and get those deals over the line quickly into January, then uh, things will improve a lot. Um, I think Eddie Howe's a good manager, but he hasn't got much to work with and confidence is low. Um, they need a couple of signings, I think, to lift spirits and send a message to everyone that this is a pretty stark situation. They've got the money to do that now. So, no, I think I think they can pick up quickly because we've seen clubs turn around in a short space of time and January signings can have that impact. Um, But yeah, you'd like to think that the signings will come very early on in the window. And Rob mentioned Arsenal before, a couple of Arsenal Mm. fans on this this show, myself included. Pleased to see us up to fourth, albeit, you know, a few games in hand from teams around us. And they did this Mm. without their captain. Uh, Do you think Premier League captains or football captains that held to these high, these, these almost impossibly high standards around punctuality that, that most of us in the world don't don't necessarily have have to do. Or do you think Arteta did the right thing and and and, and had to make action to make a point? I think he definitely did the right thing. I mean, I, I don't think it's too much to ask for a player on whatever money Aubameyang is earning, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds a week, to attend your job. <laughs> Training, I mean, or be on time for training. I mean, I think those are bare minimum requirements, really. 
when you're being paid that much and you're asked to be the captain of what is a, a massive football club that needs to improve its culture enormously. That needs these sorts of demands. I mean, you look at the leaders, look at Jordan Henderson at Liverpool and the example he set, you know, another captain. That's what Arsenal needs to get back to. That's what Arsenal have been for a large period of time and have clearly lost their way. And I rate what Mikel Arteta did enormously in um, saying to Obama Yang, look, you're not part of our plans until you, you ship up. And they've got a bit of an issue with him now because he's 33 soon on big money. There's a lot of clubs to be looking at him going, well, we don't want this. We don't need this. 33-year-old, he's got talent, but why would you want to bring a player like that into our system and pay that money and bring those wages in? I'm not sure how long he's got on his contract, but uh, this could be a thorny situation for Arsenal for a while. But I think Mikel Arteta is far better off saying to him, unless you're going to turn things around yourself, well, you're not playing because we've got enough good young players talent-wise to, to lift things and we're not going to progress if we've got someone like you who doesn't seem to care enough. Um as the captain of our football club. So, yeah, I, I, I love what he did. And I think you're, you're far better off in the long run with that approach than letting you know, troublesome superstars do what they want. You mentioned the youngsters before. Which ones in particular uh, have impressed you at Arsenal this season? Another goal for Smith-Rowe uh, last yeah. night. But uh, Arsenal's production line is looking pretty useful for them at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, Sako, Smith-Rowe, and Ogard are, are fantastic talents. And Martinelli as well. I mean, what they needed around them is, is some seasoned professionals and some stability at the back. I think Ben White is starting to improve. I like the signing of Tomoyasu. I think he's a good player. And um, we know that Ramsdale's been in fantastic form. That was a smart signing too. So when you put some stability in the defence, and they've still got some issues there. They're far, far from perfect in that area of the back. Remember, they're still fourth. This is Arsenal. They want to be challenging for the Titan in years to come. So they've got levels to get to. But you provide a bit more stability and it gives those young players confidence to attack with a bit of verve and a bit of purpose. And, you know, those players are starting to do that now and they're starting to sync up. I mean, Arsenal's also benefiting from not having European football this season. They need to take advantage of that. Tottenham have got it. Um, West Ham have got it. And so have United, the three big teams challenging for that fourth spot with them. So they've got a big opportunity to, uh, to try and make the most of that. Um, because next year, they even if it's not Champions League, they could have European football and it makes it more difficult to juggle a squad, especially a young squad. But they've got some lovely talent um, and just starting to come together under Mikel Arteta. And for the first time in a long time, Arsenal fans finally have some confidence that they're going in the right direction. How should the Premier League clubs handle the international fixture anomaly that comes around every two years, the African Cup of Nations in January, <coughs> considering Omicron? The Premier League clubs in the past have been pretty generous with the African uh, federations. Uh, I just sense... This time, they may not. What's your view on how the Premier League clubs should um, approach the African Cup of Nations? And in particular, you know, considering the, the fantastic African talent that is deployed every week in the Premier League. Nothing they can do. Same as the Asian Cup every two years. We know that as Australians. I mean, Matt Ryan had to leave the Premier League last season. Tom Rogic and Aaron Moy had to leave big clubs and, uh, you know, and come and play in the Asian Cup. You know, we, we get annoyed if the clubs don't let our Aussie boys go. What can you do for for the African players? It's just the way it is. You just have to cop it. Um, I think Liverpool with Salah and Mane, and they are the focus for valid reasons. They'd structured away, considering the FA Cup was in between, where they'd only missed two games. They fly them out at the latest time possible. They bring them back at the earliest time possible. I'm sure they'd invest in private jets and things like that, to, or chartered flights to get them back. 
And with an FA Cup in between, they only missed two games, which, you know, is manageable. But um, it's tough on the players, but the players want to play. You know, you, you can't blame them for that. It means a lot to them to represent their nations and, and challenge for a massive trophy, the one that they can win, um, really, because World Cups are obviously very difficult. So, you know, you've just got to cop it and, and realise that international football is an important part of the game. We all love the Premier League. It's, it's incredible and it's tough on teams. But you know, the, I love international football and I, I don't think we can just dismiss it. And yes, the clubs pay the exorbitant wages, but the international game is such an important part of the fabric of football and the purity of it. And I think that needs to be adhered to. Um, so clubs just have to cop it. They've got no choice because if they keep the players there, well, then they're banned anyway by FIFA if the tournament goes ahead. So just deal with it as best you can. Well, thanks, Daniel. Always great to chat to you, mate. There were plenty of other stories to talk about, but we'll get to them next time. Daniel Garb on box to box Always grateful for his time. If you're looking for a good podcast, get on to the official A-Legs podcast in your podcast catcher. It covers all the big stories with Robbie Cornthwaite and Amy Chapman and various other guests. It reviews and previews all the big stories in football. Okay, stick around. After the break, we're going to wrap it up with stoppage time. The boys will all be back. Lots more to talk about. We're talking Champions League as well. Next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Manchester United have done all they can. That Rooney goal was enough for the three points. Manchester City are still alive here. Balotelli. Aguero. Doesn't it still bring the hairs on the back of your neck? I remember watching that uh, so vividly and to hear our good friend Martin Tyler, who's the voice of Box to Box, just that spontaneity of excitement. Um, Aguero, what a player. Uh, uh, thank God he got a, a solid, um, outstanding career across club and, and uh, Argentinian football, uh, and we've got so much, so many memories, uh, guys. Uh, well, who wants to jump in there and comment um, on Aguero? Uh, he's, he's early... Um, retirement. Oh, certainly I can jump in, Rob. I mean, it's one of those moments uh, that you, I think you remember where you were watching it live on the on the TV. I was at home in London and it was such a strange game. There was the sending off of Joey Barton, QPR were fighting relegation, but were somehow just keeping themselves in the game. Manchester United, I think, were actually celebrating on the other pitch, thinking that they'd won the league. And of course, uh, Aguero changed the direction uh, and 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 uh, Manchester City's history forever, and of course it, w- it was strange to see him in a Barcelona shirt. But he only had those four occasion, four, four um, appearances, and obviously his tearful sort of farewell this week. But the statistics speak for themselves: seventy-four goals in one hundred and seventy-five games at Atletico, one hundred and eighty-four goals in two hundred and seventy-five games. For Manchester City, that puts him as the fourth highest goal scorer in Premier League history, the um, highest from a non-English player as well. And then at Argentinian level, uh, 41 goals in 101 games. So he's very much a goal every other game kind of man. Extremely reserved and humble, not a big personality, not a disruption in his team. Uh, and an edge, it was... The crowning glory, really, for him was the uh, was the Copa America, and finally getting that silverware with his good friend Messi. 
I can remember where I was for the Aguero goal. I didn't have Fox at the time, but I'd sat up late the night prior and listened to a... I don't know why it came on, but it came on. It was a piece on ABC Radio, and it was with the old uh, Manchester City supporters, sort of old ladies who said, oh, I've been coming in since 1950, and I never thought it'd be us through Main Road and maybe even the stadium before that. And it was uh, very much expected that it'd be the crowning glory. Just need three points against QPR, and we're there. And then obviously it went haywire, but yeah, where I pulled them out. Uh, and my other lasting Aguero memory is that I think he should be a World Cup winner uh, if Gonzalo Higuain hadn't have muffed a sitter in the final against Germany. Uh, although Germany may have been the better side and deserving World Cup winners, I think Argentina probably should have won that one. All right, guys. Well, Sergio Aguero, uh, farewell to a legend. Uh, well, some legends will be created in the uh, the Champions League knockout stages. But uh, before we get to that, uh, what a balls up the, uh, the draw was. Uh, following a technical error that required a redo. Uh, you know, we had one minute we had the Ronaldo-Messi clash. Uh, the next minute it's wiped out. Derek, give us your analysis of, of what happened and uh, and why. Not much analysis required, I think, Rob. They, they, it's just a stuff-up, as you said. Uh, you know, UEFA don't have to do a lot, and all they had to do was sort of pick some names out of the proverbial hat and remember who'd been in each group and it'd probably be better going back to the ball system I suppose and the in the pot as opposed to uh the computerized system so yeah I mean and it could have caused big problems you know it could even have been legal issues with this with you know a null a null and void draw but uh yeah as it as it turned out they recast it as you said and this is an extremely strong last 16 you kind of look at it and go you know it's not really but apart from uh, Barcelona, obviously, the, the huge omission. This is pretty much kind of what you would have thought it could have been. And and there's some excellent ties there. I, you know, you only have to look at the bottom one in the draw there. Paris Saint-Germain uh, face Real Madrid. Um, so that's going to be messy against his old nemesis uh, once again with Real Madrid. And uh, Atletico with Manchester United kind of jumps out at me too. Um you know, Simeone versus Ranić, two very uh, distinctive managers, um, and I think that that will be interesting. Um, Bayern presumably get the sort of you know so-called easier draw with Salzburg, but we also know what they've been doing this uh, season and in previous seasons. I don't think Bayern will underestimate them at all. City will play Sporting; they'll probably see that as a pretty good draw. Ajax and Benfica. Chelsea and Lille, and Lille obviously having been champions of France last year, but having a pretty wretched season in league. Uh, Chelsea will will fancy themselves the defending champions to to get through that. Juventus will play uh, Villarreal, and of course, Rob, your Liverpool will play Inter. Are you happy with that one? Well, I guess uh, the fact that they're the reigning City are champions and, and on top of the league, you'd suggest perhaps not. But uh, I, I'd back Liverpool to, to get the job done against pretty much uh, uh, any of the contenders. Uh, and uh, and I would rather them playing Inter at this stage than, say, a PSG uh, right now. So, yeah, we'll take, uh, we'll take Inter. And I think Liverpool will uh, make some serious noise in the competition this year. I think that is a good draw uh, for Liverpool. I don't think Inter, I think sort of post-Conte, I just I and don't think... Lukaku. And without Lukaku. I just, I don't see them as the same force. So, look, I don't think there is an easy draw. And, I, I, you know, I think, you know, Sporting have been fantastic. I think 
they'll certainly test test Manchester City. I mean, you know, they look su- supreme at the moment after their seven nil hiding of uh, during the week of of of, uh, of Leeds and four points clear at the at the top of the league now. But yeah, look, it, it just looks. This is the exciting time. We've got through that kind of the the drudgery of the group stage, and this is kind of where it is. It's knockout football. It's going to be intense and exciting, and yeah, I'm 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 really looking forward to it for sure. Well, did you? We didn't. We didn't rob one vinyl thing. We didn't. We we should probably mention Stephen Gerrard as well. Talking about Liverpool, we were talking about Eddie Howe uh, in the in the interview with Garby and how he's had a you know hasn't had the strongest start to his career there. But Stephen Gerrard is um, four uh, wins out of six, and Ed, you called it on this show a few weeks ago. I mean. This guy, you know, he he is actually looking like the real deal, isn't he? Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the things that uh, will be forever remembered in his career, and I was chatting to a, a young friend who's a, a, a Brentford supporter and, uh, um, you know, has some allegiances to Aston Villa uh, as well. But uh, the, the fact that he um, he was able to... Uh, to uh, to not engage with the the Anfield crowd when they were doing their level best to to draw him in and acknowledge his uh, his you know career and his legend status at, at the ground that uh, you know he he didn't turn he didn't uh, acknowledge he, uh, he he was at pains to be clear in all of his actions on in the technical area that uh, that he was an Aston Villa man so you know I think uh, we're we're seeing the very early stages of of a man who's going to become uh, well, when he retires from football management, I, I think he'll be a very old man, put it that way, and a very successful man. Yeah, he's super impressive. And I just think that um, the old-fashioned apprenticeship uh, when you want to be a coach is the way to go. And he, as soon as he stopped playing, he, he got involved in the Liverpool Academy and uh, all reports were that he did a very, very good job there. And then, obviously, the big risk was Rangers. And um, he's learned on the job at Rangers. And uh, I think that's a wonderful apprenticeship for him. And I, I just think this Aston Villa opportunity um, has come at the right time for him. And and I just, for me, the, the penny dropped when I saw his performance in the first um, press conference he had at Aston Villa. I was just uh, so um, shocked at how impressive he was. And I thought, this bloke can't fail. He really can't. All right. Well, gents, um, before we wrap it up, Edge and Willem, you were you know, having an arm wrestle about who was going to um, take this next story. So we're going to get both of your views on this. But uh, Edge, Yemen, uh, tell us, because a lot of our listeners may not be across this, uh, this incredible uh, footballing story. Yeah, obviously, um, uh, obviously, I work in the Middle East uh, um, quite a bit, and I'm aware of the politics. And if you are interested in Middle Eastern politics, there's been quite a brutal and tragic civil war in Yemen, which has been a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And um, there's been over 250,000 people have lost their lives in pretty tragic circumstances, including um, as many as 40,000 civilians. So um, it's a stain on the Middle East. It really uh, it really um, she- sheets home the fractures uh, along uh, tribal and religious grounds in the Middle East, which um, can dominate politics in that region. But something beautiful happened in Yemen in, the, in the, the last week. And I thought I would leave it to the words of Ali al-Mujad, who wrote this beautiful um, uh, summary for the Washington Post. And he wrote, they poured into the streets from houses and cafes 
their cheers soaring over a cacophony of fireworks and celebratory gunfire. After seven years of division, Yemenis united on Monday over a rare bit of good news in a country ravaged by a deadly civil war. Their under-15 boys soccer team won the West Asia Junior Football Championship, defeating no other than the neighbouring power, Saudi Arabia, for the title. The win elicited a cascade of national pride across the country from the north, where the Iranian-backed Houthi militants are in power, to the south, which remains under the control of the internationally recognised government backed by Riyadh. In cities that have been, in recent years, uh, rocked by airstrikes, bombings and shelling, people spilled into the streets in celebration, seizing the opportunity to relish, if just for a moment, the forgotten taste of uninhibited football joy. Well played, soccer. You've got a role in this world, and these things uh, need to be celebrated and uh, amplified. So uh, congratulations to the Yemen under-15 boys team, West Asian champions over the much greater, resourced and powerful Saudi Arabia. Yeah, beautiful words uh, there, Adrian. Well read. Um, it's just one of those great uh, uplifting stories that football can bring and does so often. And Willem, you were across this story. Your thoughts? The situation is just awfully uh, sad, really. 10 million Yemeni children have been killed or maimed since 2015, according to the UN. And the UN have also said earlier this year that 16 million people are headed uh, towards starvation. So as I read through this story, it was sort of, hang on, they didn't all charge out into the war zone and say that football had sort of, you know, put it all aside just temporarily. But it really did seem that that was the case. So, yeah, a heartwarming story uh, amid a backdrop of uh, an awful story, really. As um, sad as the broader story is, uh, it is um, wonderful to hear that those uplifting moments um, have, have given some happiness uh, Happiness, obviously, is uh, the theme that we do, though, anticipate as we uh, count down the days to Christmas. Um, we are going to do our usual Christmas show next week, um, and uh, and we will have a bit of fun doing that as well because football never sleeps. Um, so, gentlemen, we'll, we'll be back again. Edge, um, you'll be celebrating Christmas in Bangkok this year. Yes, I'm going to, um, uh, hopefully, my cousin doesn't know about this, but I have a cousin who lives here and uh, a very close one. Um, I'm going to lob at his place on Christmas Day and uh, do a bit of Skype back to my family back home and enjoy uh, Christmas with my Bendigo cousin who's lived here for 20 years. So I'm looking forward to that. That will be a lot of fun, mate. And uh, and we'll be back home here. Um, Willem, um, you've all planned for Christmas yourself, mate. We'll talk about it a bit more next week. Yeah, Geelong for me, Rob. Excellent. And Derek, um, well, this would be the second uh, Christmas with the beautiful little Maeve, I'd imagine. Yeah, no, yeah, I'm very much looking forward to it after a long year, and I imagine I will be mostly sitting down and and watching the Ashes. I think I was just contemplating whether England should put Aaron Ramsdale behind the stumps <laughs> because you drop Lavashane and he goes on and scores a fifty. How depressing! Sorry, mate. I'm not going to rub it in any further. And Damo, can you just make sure you've got a mic next week because we need to talk to you as we wish you one. Um, Notale as the Felice Anno Nuovo. I think I've got it right, haven't I there, mate, in uh, my best Italian. So if you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to box to box wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. And join us next week when we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game. <laughs>